Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 22nd of May 2013. For newcomers, please help yourself to the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com where I go through the system which we're born into. And it's a system that pre-exists and uh, it's a system where the richest guys who in the planet actually uh, 100 years ago or more form big foundations. They call themselves the parallel government. These foundations also control big think tanks, which advise all governments across the world now on, on their big agendas. And they also uh, finance thousands of non-governmental organizations, some of which you know, like Greenpeace and all the rest of it, that advocate certain changes in policies and so on, and they lobby governments as well. So these guys got together to be a parallel government and to bring a global system into into being, which they themselves and their offspring would control. And, of course, they also brought, brought in the scientists too because they believe in eugenics, and they brought academia on board to really start training each generation of the managerial class to train the rest of the public into the systems as we all go through the big changes. This is the age of transition, they call it. And we're going through massive changes, whether you know it or not. As most folk really don't know, uh, they just adapt and adapt subconsciously without thinking very much. But other people do know what's happening, or they know little bits and pieces of what's happening that affects them personally. And uh, they find that there's no complaints department in this system because it's not democratic at all. You're living through an agenda. And you know what's politically correct in the agenda, but the things you're allowed to talk about and the things you're not allowed to talk about. That means you don't have a free speech uh, system or democracy at all. Because unless you have free speech, you can't put everything on the table and iron out all the problems, obviously. So these boys got together, as I say, and, and they decided that they'd need wars to bring the world uh, to their knees, all the countries, all the national countries, and to give up nationalism altogether, and then to merge themselves into training blocks, which eventually be, would go under one world government system. And that's where we're heading for today. And the boys who set up the Royal Institute of International Affairs were behind it, private organization, which also is called the Council on Foreign Relations, and they have been directing the shape and the course of this project for a 100 years. So as I say, help yourself to the website and go into the archive section. You'll find lots and lots of talks I've given over the years. Download the talks for free, or you can print them up uh, in uh, in English, or go into alanwattsentinel.eu and get transcripts in other languages from the talks I've given. And remember, to you, the audience that bring me to you, if you can buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughthematrix.com, that might help me take over because it's quite expensive doing what I do. And um, from the US to Canada, remember, you can still use personal checks or you can use international postal money orders in the post office or you can send cash or use PayPal. Across the world, you've got Western Union MoneyGram and PayPal. And straight donations are awfully, awfully welcome as we, as we go through inflation, planned inflation, of course, just like the bank crashes were planned as well.
The big boy said many, many years ago that to train the West, especially to go into a post-consumerist society. They then changed the, the terminology when many folk were using the terms and talking about it and complaining about it, and they changed terminology to call it, to, and call it austerity. Well, how do you think they're going to bring in austerity? Well, they, they crashed the banks. The banks lost nothing. They were all in on it. In fact, they all knew they could build out anyway. And so they actually gained, because all the stuff that they had on their mortgages and their fake mortgages and their phony ones and so on, uh, there's, also, there's also a lot of real estate involved as well, which they held on to. And they're still selling off. Plus they got bailed out. It's not bad, is it? It depends who you are. Some are more equal than others in such utopias, said Orwell. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. And as I was saying before, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which was the, the, the later name which is still used today for the group that used to be called the Milner Group, Lord Alfred Milner Group, uh, that coupled with the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and Lord Rothschild uh, to form the Royal Institute of International Affairs, is still going today uh, big time, of course, and they've got branches across every country in the world and members. And you can't just join it, you have to be asked to join it. In the U.S., they call it the Council on Foreign Relations. They have all the top media tycoons on board with them and members, and the top journalists, too, on television and radio and newspapers. And they give us a reality, basically. And their whole agenda now, of course, is going totally global because the old idea was based on the Marxian model of uh, uh, trading blocks, uniting countries under trading blocks like the European Union, which was an economic union, supposedly. Now it's completely economic because they're going political, too. And uh, and with loss of national sovereignty in those countries involved. But also, too, they they'd create trade partnerships, free trade partnerships for the big corporations. Not for everyone, but just for the, the chosen the special ones at the top that they've picked their own members. And these international corporations would have free trade to trade any other countries under deals they'd make with those countries where they wouldn't get charged import duties and, and so on. Plus, the first world countries are, still are uh, financing third world countries uh, as they join more and more of them together. And you finance them to come up to a higher level of living at the cost of you as well. Meanwhile, they can uh, export things back into your country from those countries and, and they can still, and they can get them in without any, any uh, taxes whatsoever. But you try to put stuff into their countries and they will tax you. So it's a, it's a one-sided thing altogether. But the international corporations don't lose a thing out of it at all. Everybody else does. And it keeps every other trader out of the market altogether. It truly is a locked door. But anyway, that's where it's going. And then eventually through all the, the amalgamations like Europe, uh, the next step was to amalgamate the Americas. That's still going on. And they've signed a lot of deals to do, make it happen so. And it's still going on today. And then, of course, they come up with the next part, which was the Transatlantic Partnership with the Americas and, and the European Union bloc are to join together in partnership and economics and legal systems, which means everything all, all together. That's how it works. And then, of course, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, is, a, is a similar thing, too, and unite all the three blocs in the world. That's really what it's all about. Planned over 100 years ago, as I say. Karl Marx talked about it in the 1800s. 
And the bankers are all on board for this because there's other things behind this too. Anyway, the whole idea of bringing in austerity, as I say, was a new term simply for the post-consumerist society, which the Club of Rome talked about in the 1970s that they'd put us all through. And eventually all our expendable money, or our spending money basically, the pocket money you could say, has to be spent on essential items only. Is to train us all to go into it. They have to crash the banks to make it happen. And then they'll do it again, by the way, to create the, the big crisis, because eventually they want the Bank for International Settlements to come up to its full stature, which the Royal Institute of International Affairs created it for, along with the IMF, to, to take over all the finances of the entire planet. And this, this is where we're going shortly, as it comes up to its true stature. Anyway, to get it all going, of course, they've been, they've been, they've got all the countries in the EU signing deals to keep bailing out countries that are failing. So it's bad enough when you're, when you're not really, um, bringing enough cash to keep your own people fed very well. You've got to start borrowing money from the big bankers to, to, to throw at this, this hole of different countries that are sinking in the EU, which makes sure that everybody ends up in the hole, obviously. Obviously. That's the whole point of it. Anyway, they're still on the go, and it says the EU budget fraud may be more than four billion pounds, which is 12 times higher than previous figures, it says here. The officials failed to give realistic assessment of how much money was lost. They call it lost money. That's common with all governments now, including this massive EU-Soviet system. And the EU's cohesion fund and agricultural areas were more susceptible to fraud, it says. And the House of Lords Committee condemned the Treasury, for, the British Treasury, for lack of help with the inquiry. It says the European Union has been defrauded of more than four billion pounds a year, twelve times official estimates, a damning parliamentary report claims. Agricultural subsidies, payments for projects in the poorest countries, bribery, corruption, and cigarette smuggling are mere main reasons for the massive losses to the House of Lords Committee. Now you understand a lot of the people who formed and, and were behind this European Union. Uh, used to be called communists, for those who don't know it. And communists, believe you me, don't wear uh, working boots and dungarees. Uh, the top communists are often millionaires. Always remember that, too. And they've all moved in, of course, into this European Parliament, which they worked to get one way or another, because the Soviet system didn't really fall. It simply transformed and moved out. And, of course, um, there's even been old uh, persecuted people from the old Soviet Union who've come out and said that openly. It's definitely just a movement towards the next step. And it is. Anyway, that's what they had in the Soviet Union, massive corruption. And it's the same thing in this EU system, too. Since its latest budget report, the European Commission said that £348 million a year was going missing, but members of the Lord's Justice, Institutions and Consumer Protection, EU subcommittee said this was an unrealistic estimate. It says that it said the areas most susceptible to fraud were the EU's cohesion fund, which is £176 million, and agriculture, which is £66 million, which goes to the poorest countries. These include the former Soviet bloc, as well as Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Cyprus. Now, a lot of these places they're giving money to don't even exist, these farms, these massive farms. They don't even exist. Massive fraud. Cohesion funds were often spent on projects to do with the environment, again, lots of fraud there, and transport in member states where pays around 90% less than the EU average. Uh, from bribery and corruption to cigarette smuggling, member states who administer 80% of the EU's funds 
were also failing in their duty to report suspected fraud outside. The EU has claimed that just £348 million pounds or €404 million Euros was missing from its budget thanks to fraud. However, the real size of the EU budget loss annually is likely to be around €4.3 billion, €5 billion Euros, or even more according to the, the fight against fraud or the EU's finances published by the Lord's Justice, Institutions and Consumer Protection EU Subcommittee. Now, you know when you have national governments, there's always fraud, for instance. It's always fraud. You always get the, the crooks at the top. But when you put all these countries together with a super parliamentary system with all that massive tax base, what a, what a, a pot that is, eh? And uh, you just can't resist it. They can't resist it. Masses of money goes missing, missing all the time. His peers also condemned the Treasury for lack of help with the inquiry after the officials cancelled their appearance before the committee at the last minute, claiming fraud against the EU's outside their scope, they said. The committee said the UK government was not doing enough and, and called their ministers to set up a single department to combat fraud. Well, it will go on as long as they have this crazy EU-Soviet system, which is not democratic. It's not set up to be democratic. It never will be democratic. And um, as I say, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Every country that's a member now is massively in the hole, massively in the hole. Plus, they set up a, the private central bank for Europe. Again, uh, by the same boys that set up the BIS, Bank for National Settlements. And they've got a massive clout there, massive power. This private bunch. So, it's kaputs. Now, Iceland, well, you know that Iceland dealt with the, the bank fiascos and scandals and the crooks in a different way than all the rest. They did not bail them out. They allowed those banks to crash. And, um, and they imprisoned some of the bankers too. It was like the only country to do so. But they also have been, have been approached to join the EU, which would be suicide. Like all the other countries that joined it. They were supposed to be, by this time, the, the EU countries were supposed to be living uh, like pharaohs. This is how they sold it to them years ago. Uh, to, when they, for the vote, to vote for, to join the euro. Uh, and, and you would, uh, you'd all, you would be left behind if you didn't join it. There's going to be so much wealth for everybody and lots of jobs for the working people. And so it's been an absolute Incredible disaster, uh, full of lies and nonsense, just to get it to happen by those who are internationalists, put it that way. Anyway, Iceland's new government is turning its back on the European Union and will shelve accession talks that started in 2010 as the nation seeks to protect its economic recovery from the debt crisis. This is... Um, the Prime Minister, uh, this new Prime Minister, uh, Sigmundur David uh, Gunnlaugsson, will take over as Prime Minister this week, has decided that a January decision to freeze the EU membership talks will be extended indefinitely. His political advisor, John Johannes uh, Thor Skullison, said in a phone interview today. Later in the term, there will be a referendum on whether Iceland should continue the talks, although no date has been decided, he says. So at least they've got, you know, some common sense there because they've watched all the European countries get destroyed one after another because you lose your sovereignty. Plus they bring in massive immigration from all over the world, not Europe. And and you have lots of problems then too and big welfare system, which the banks love because governments, they have to borrow more money from the international moneylenders to, to pay for it all. They live on debt, remember. So it's good to see the Iceland's thinking and watching the rest of the world, a rare thing these days. 
Now also, there's a big kind of rah-rah article here from Bloomberg, and it says oil pipelines are to drive the Canadian economy, just like the 1880s railroad, it says. Well, I don't know if he's read about the 1880s railroad system in Canada, because it was, it was like the robber barons in the U.S., exactly the same, where the guys uh, could lobby governments, had a lot of clout, these guys, awfully rich, these big money barons, and they were given stacks of land for nothing. Uh, they were given grants as well uh, from from the, the government, massive grants. So they end up owning all the land for nothing with these tracks run through, not just a few yards either side, but you're talking about miles. And then once down the road when the, you're building property on those lands, it, it, it's worth a fortune. Anyway, it's obviously not really his history. But anyway, this is here. The pipelines under attack from environmentalists are essential to Canada's economic growth, just as railroads were in the 1880s, it says. Which means stacks I'm going to get built shortly. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix and talking about the, the pipelines that are going through Canada and how they're touting them to be like the 1880s railroad system. And it says pipelines are very similar to railroads. Monaco suggested at the Bloomberg Canada Economic Summit in Toronto. It says when you get down to it, it says Canada's an export-driven resource economy, and this is our foundation. And it's true, that's what it's turned into. It's an export-driven, mainly raw resources, lumber and so on. And it's strange because after World War II, even the United Nations... Uh, although it uh, belongs to the Royal Institute of International Affairs, who set it up and run it today. Uh, they, they said that Canada was the most likely to succeed in manufacturing because so many factories had jumped out into the war effort and got put up that had all these factories churning at different things. But, uh, of course, that wasn't on the cards, and, and the Canadians didn't know it, and the folk in the Western countries didn't know it, but they'd signed agreements, pretty quiet agreements, to deindustrialize their countries. Uh, over so many years and that's what happened to Canada so now you've got to sell now is your raw resources and it says pipelines already carry 15% of Canadian exports in the form of crude mostly to US markets plans by Enbridge and TransCanada Core uh, to spend more than a combined 50 billion dollars uh, Canadian that's 48 billion US to expand networks to the Pacific and Atlantic coasts are opposed by environmental groups such as Forest Ethics. The nation's oil tr- uh, trade rose 7% to about 73 billion Canadian last year, according to Stats Canada, and is set to grow faster than the total economy. The problem is with these things, they don't really create that much jobs. You see, you see they, really, they don't really. And it says, the completion of a transnational railroad line in 1885 opened up much of what's now Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba for settlement, helping to establish Canada as one of the world's largest agricultural exporters. And it's true, all through the Cold War, all through the Soviet system, the, the U.S. and Canada competed every year with the bid to supply the Soviets, right up until the wall fell down in Berlin, uh, with grain every year, massive exports, because they couldn't feed themselves in the workers' paradise. But it says pipeline companies are proposing uh, conduits that will help transport millions of barrels of new production from oil sands projects in Alberta to refineries in eastern Canada, markets in the U.S. and export facilities in western Canada. So it might give you some temporary jobs, but I don't know about the long-term ones. 
But it's so sad. That most countries now uh, deliberately they're made to be made in, interdependent. Again, that's the United Nations term. Interdependence means no country can be independent. Well, maybe one, but all the rest of them have to be interdependent, and um, that means uh, you can't be self-sufficient. That's the big agenda for the world economy and the world uh, amalgamation of, of the system, this global system. I'll put these links up tonight anyway at cuttingthroughmedias.com. Now, we all knew about the big nonsense that happened in Britain with the big uh, scare about the flu that was going to kill millions of people, which didn't. And uh, it's good marketing, mind you. I mean, that's, we keep forgetting that. People think they're so trained and brainwashed by by dramas on television and movies where doctors and surgeons are all running around all knowing what they're doing and, and it's all scientifically based and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's complete fiction as opposed to reality. But that's what works. That's what stays in your head. And, and of course, they had all the people uh, running off to doctors with a little, a little cough or a cold or a sniffle and, and thinking they had the flu. They weren't even uh, testing them for the, for the flu at the time. This is a few years ago. They were just taking the symptoms, saying, yep, you've got that particular flu, this, this ter- terrible one. And they were taking Tamil flu drugs to try and stop the virus from taking over. It says the government spent £424 million, £424 million, stockpiling a drug to treat flu, despite there being question marks over the effectiveness of the medicine called Tamiflu, a public spending watchdog has found. The National Audit Office uh, report reveals how much taxpayer money was wasted. Of the 40 million units of Tamiflu bought, a quarter were written off. Some 6.5 million units of the drug had to be binned because of storage problems, a mistake that cost £74 million. Well, see, governments are allowed to make mistakes like that. You, can, you do, can you get away with that? £74 million. A wee mistake, you see. The Department of Health said it would consider the points made by the NEO. And as for the swine flu that wasn't there, remember? It says the NEO began investigating after a number of MPs raised questions about the decision to stockpile the antiviral drug Tamiflu, also called Ocel Tamivar. Tamivar. And it says the UK is recognised by the World Health Organisation as being one of the best prepared in the world for a potential flu pandemic. But I think that's what, the, that's what they said from the, the Department of Health spokespeople. The drug was a major part of the government's response to containing the swine flu epidemic that spread quickly around the world in 2009. Although Tamiflu speeds up recovery, times experts don't agree over its ability to reduce complications and hospitalizations. Actually, they found it didn't even work with this particular flu. But it was great, it's great marketing. See, that's what it's all about. Marketing and fear. Remember what Rothschild said? He was asked, the first Rothschild in Britain, he was asked, when do you make your, your, the best profits? He says, when blood is running in the street, being revolutions and so on. And in other words, crisis, massive crisis. So you create the crisis, massive, everybody terrified, you're losing their lives, and come forward with this thing here, and the government buys all this. You know, incredible, isn't it? The money they spent on this thing, it didn't even work. That's when you make your, your, that's good marketing strategy for the drug companies. Not bad, eh? Anyway, it says, it says here, Public Accounts Committee Chairwoman Margaret Hodge says taxpayers' money had been squandered and that there was simply no excuse for the waste. They call that a waste. I mean, that would float some, some small countries for years. That could have 424 million pounds. Back with more after this. 
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. And for those who remember the, the Monsanto Protection Act, it was, it was tucked into a bill put through the U.S. Uh, in, a, in a massive uh, omnibus-type bill, farm bill, and um, to, to give them complete uh, anonymity to their deal with the U.S. government and so on as they take over the seeds of the whole planet. Anyway, it says here, Senator Jeff Merkley is planning to use an amendment to the upcoming farm bill that would repeal the secret provision known as the Monsanto Protection Act, a rider attached anonymously to a spending bill that sailed through Congress in March. An outcry greeted the news of legislation once the public learned that it had been passed by Congress with no debate and signed into law by President Barack Obama. The provision allows Monsanto and other companies to continue selling genetically engineered seeds even if a court has blocked them from doing so. Merkley will press for a floor vote on his repeal amendment when the farm bill is taken up next week. It says, federal courts have recently ruled that the U.S. Department of Agriculture had failed to consider the potential harm some genetically engineered crops may have and acted too hastily in approving their sale. The industry fought back with the farm bill rider, preventing the enforcement of court rulings. So now it says, uh, Senator John Tester spoke out against the rider on the Senate floor, but the chamber is typically empty, and his objection was not, not enough to block it from passage. Uh, John Stewart helped elevate the issue with an extended segment on it, and the measure also found a number of conservative critics. So uh, so there you go. I mean, Monsanto's going ahead. Now, I think there's a big worldwide demonstration against Monsanto taking over the world's food supply on the 25th of May. You can look it up on the Internet. And uh, and see what you think. But I mean, no company can get the kind of power uh, given to them uh, over something so essential as the, all the seed of the planet, folk. That's where this was all going, you know. And eventually, as they forced countries to take this stuff under trade deals, they forced them to do it. Their trade deals, or even with their lending deals and grant money and so on to different countries, uh, then uh, the their natural seeds go to go get lost totally. And they wouldn't even know what they were anymore. And they go back cap in hand every year and buy this stuff from Monsanto rather than collecting their own seed and using it over and over. If they buy Monsanto's every year, that's one heck of a power to have. Tremendous power. And also, too, I'm sure everyone's heard about the, the latest uh, machete attack on a, a guy in Britain. And it says... Um, it was two, uh, uh, I don't know, African men, uh, cutting up a white fella. They say it was, a, it was a soldier, maybe off-duty soldier. And there's different stories. Some say that these two guys were driving a car. They knocked him down first and jumped out, and they started hacking him to death with knives and a machete. Although what you see in the photograph is actually a butcher's cleaver that one of them had on him. And it says, uh, from the, the Mail Online, it says they were chopping and cutting him. Shocked eyewitness tells of horrific machete attack on soldier. And then you go into soldier beheaded in Woolwich machete attack. And that's the, the latest thing. I don't think they cut his head right off him. That's from the Telegraph. Just, and it gives you live coverage and so on. So please deal with what was believed to be two shootings and a machete attack. Well, two shootings were from the cops who arrived on the scene and shot the two guys. And then it says... um. 
And the Guardian, it says, dramatic footage of the suspected terrorist attack near the Woolwich Barracks today that left one man dead has emerged, showing a man with blood-covered hands using jihadist rhetoric to justify the violence. And you can, this jihadic rhetoric was the fact that they were getting back at, at Britain for being involved and uh, and doing what we've been doing for years now and involving all these, these Muslim countries, basically. And I mean, this had to happen eventually, as they always bring the wars home with them. And it's been a long, long protracted war. It's not over yet. So they've got other countries to take out yet under the big plan. As they standardize the country under a forced uh, democracy is what you call it. Not that we have democracy, but this is this had to happen eventually. And there'll be more of it, unfortunately, which means the whole country is kind of locked down under martial law, in a sense, uh, fighting terrorism. It's perpetual terrorism. All started with Tony Blair, remember? The only man who wanted to be on board with the U.S. and go into Iraq, you know, in Afghanistan. But again, the, the project for New American Century Group Published in the 90s, they had all those countries listed to be taken out. And that's what they've done. As I said, so, some more to go. And there'll be more and more of this. And plus, too, with the multiculturalism, uh, they've made sure that they can now make uh, your country into a war zone with kind of martial law techniques and so on. They knew this. They set up the chessboard long before they invaded with massive... The other night I read about the massive immigration under Blair's regime because they couldn't get enough working folk in Britain anymore to, to basically vote far left. They mean actually communists. They couldn't get the folk to vote that way anymore. So they imported them. That was the, that was the reason, the claim that they, they brought them all in, lots of them, and still bringing them in. And, but it's also part of the EU project, the European Union project. The European Union project isn't simply free uh, movement of goods. It's also labor, but not just labor from the EU. It's from all across the world, especially from third world countries. So this is part of the end product of this too. But the big boys who planned it knew what they're doing. And also this article here, because it's not just in England this is happening, and Stockholm and Sweden have had riots for the third day and night in a row. And it says cars and buildings were smoldering early Wednesday after a third straight night of rioting around Sweden's capital and what's become the country's worst outbreak of civil unrest in years. Eight people were arrested overnight, uh, bringing the totals uh, since the violence began Sunday to 15. And it says uh, at least five people were being held in charges, and that more arrests were likely after video shot at the scene was reviewed. Uh, the disturbance was reported in six areas. As the violence spread around Stockholm, more than a dozen people torched cars, uh, and actually the hundreds of cars got torched, and houses too. And it's right in this, this multicultural ethnic area where they bring in lots of immigrants. I'll put a couple of articles up tonight on it. And um, this is going to happen more and more. And that's followed by this article here. It says, Multiculturalism is failing, says a Swedish uh, Prime Minister, and who pleads for order as the riots engulf Stockholm suburbs. And it says, and it says um, Hundreds of youths hurling rocks, burning cars, and smashing windows for the second day in a row in Stockholm say they're protesting against police brutality and inequality. Mind you, too, there's professional agitators that aren't, don't even belong to their groups. They belong to other groups. Who are, being, uh, who are behind this too, making sure they do agitate. It says, in Sweden, critics of the multiculturalism policies lash out at immigration laws. 
Seven uh, policemen were injured. At least ten cars in countless containers set on fire. Dozens of windows smashed in several heavily immigrant populated neighborhoods of the Swedish capital Tuesday. Police said some 300 people are now taking part in riots, which started in protest against the shooting of a man allegedly armed with a knife in the Stockholm district of Husby. The protesters also cited beatings and uh, discriminative derogatory remarks of the officers. But a lot more say that too, regardless. The protesters are mainly young, the police said. Of the seven rioters arrested Tuesday, only four were detained, two of them later released, and one turned out to be underage. All of the men arrested on suspicion of violent rioting and assaulting a public official were aged between 15 to 19, the police said. And then showed the burned out vans and, and, and so on. Anyway, Swedish Prime Minister Frederick Reinfeldt on Tuesday commented on the matter, urging a halt to the violence, but acknowledged in the short term that may be unlikely. He says, we have groups of young men who think that they can and should change society with violence. He says, let's be clear, this is not okay. We cannot be ruled by violence, Reinfeldt said, uh, as cited by the local. He also urged everyone, including parents and adults, to help restore calm. Husby residents must get their neighbourhood back, he says. Uh, speaking of the district, where around 80%, about 11,000 residents are first or second generation immigrants. This particular district has been seen unemployment increasing, I've seen employment increasing and crime falling in the last seven years because they've got a massive programme to get work going for them too. It says, Reinfeld added, speaking of the right decision and direction it's been going into. Police, and it shows you that, but not everyone agreed with Reinfeld's assessment of immigrant populated Swedish districts development, with critics saying that the integration policies of the country and of the whole of Western Europe are not working. And it says, there's a clear consequence of this multiculturalism politics that Sweden adopted around the 80s and increased in the 90s. And this is not a unique uh, one single occasion. We've had these ethnic-based riots against Swedish authorities. We've seen this in Western Europe, and they've had it in Britain too, with the Brixton riots in the late 70s and so on, and other ones since then. It says, that is very sad, and I think we will see more of this if we don't change the politics the chairman of the Sweden's National Democrats Party, Mark Abramson, told the RT. While not elaborating on the incident that caused the current riots, Abramson said all such incidents have a common problem beneath, smouldering beneath. There is immigrants not identifying themselves with the country's society, nor adopting or accepting the country's authorities, sticking only to their own ethnic group. And that's a fact. Most con- a lot of the countries they're bringing in are, are collectivist societies who stick to their own groups. Sweden has been trying harder than any one of the countries in Europe to try to push for integration. We've invested virtually billions from taxpayers' money into it. We've tried everything the scientists have presented, and still it's not working, the politician argued. They live in their area, and they feel their area is their own. And when the police arrive, they feel they're being intruded into their sort of country, their territory. The police who work in these areas, they have to be in two cars, one protecting the other. People are trying to maintain buildings to have security guards. The fire department can't work. They, they get attacked by angry immigrant youth that feel like they're intruding into their own area, even though they're trying to help, Abramson went on to say. And it says, um, and it shows different, different photographs of the policemen trying to secure buildings and put the fires out and so on. But this is the effect that had to happen as well. And believe me, there's other agitators from other groups who are professional agitators that also keep it going. That's another big part of it too. Who wants, uh, who are pushing for it much, much more multicultural immigration for a different purpose. For a different purpose, folks.
Now, in Paris, this is, all this is going on, in Paris, I mean, you've, you've heard about the mess that uh, France has right now with the massive taxation on, on the wealthier folk, and they're all leaving the country, naturally. And um, But also, too, they also have uh, uh, massive immigration. It says, suicide in Paris cathedral altar stirs France's far right. Now, far right today in France means someone who believes in, in their, their country as a nation. You understand that's what far right means today? that you have a nation with a history. And it says here that uh, Dominique Venner, 78, was a right-wing French historian. He was a blogger and essayist, it says. It says, uh, the French essayist and blogger killed himself on the altar of Notre Dame Cathedral, Paris, Tuesday. The public suicide in Paris, it says, stirred a strong political reaction in the country. Some one and a half thousand visitors were cleared out of Notre Dame Cathedral after he pulled a letter on the altar of the 850-year-old monument Tuesday, then pulled out a gun and shot himself in the head. Three days after a law legalizing same-sex marriage came into effect. Well, it wasn't just that he was protesting. Venner's blog describes his opposition to France's new law authorizing same-sex marriage. In some posts, he criticizes massive immigration and what he describes as encroaching Islam. Others include historical analysis of revolution or American-European relations. The suicide was described by National Front leader Marine Le Pen on Twitter as a political act. All respected Dominique Venner, whose final eminently political act was to try to wake up the people of France. And uh, uh, Venner said that the people, he hoped he would wake them up. That's what Venner said, the man who killed himself. He said because they're hypnotized, they're, 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 they're in a daze. And it says, uh, it is in life and hope that France will renew and save itself. And it says, um, in response, Socialist Party Chief Harlem Desir said he was shocked by her characterization. He called Venner's death uh, the, the gesture of the far-right marginal. Because you understand, so, uh, France is totally socialist. I mean, you may almost say communist, but uh, that's what it is today. And it says it was the first suicide in decades in the landmark site Monsignor Patrick Jackin, the cathedral's reactor, told the Associated Press. Since they fought with the French forces against Algerian independence fighters a half-century ago, and a war that ended with France losing its most prized colony. And uh, and also, too, uh, I can put up a, 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 I've got a copy of the letter. He's, the papers haven't published it, but I've got a copy of the suicide note, if, and we'll see who wants to read that. And an article here, too, it says, 29 shocking facts that prove that college education in America is a giant money-making scam. It says, college education in the U.S. has become a cruel joke. We honestly push our high school children to invest tens of thousands of dollars and at least four years of their lives to get a college education because they won't have any sort of a future without it. That's what you always tell them. So they sign up for decades of debt slavery and spend years listening to pompous windbags fill their heads with utter nonsense. The sad truth is that most college courses are a total joke and they do very little to actually prepare those students for the real world. Since I know I attended public universities in the U.S. for eight years. Most college courses are so easy that the family dog could pass them. When they finally graduate, our young people discover that they were lied to all along. The, promise, the promised good jobs are not here or there for most of them, but the huge debts that, that they are committed themselves to will follow them uh, around permanently. 
when you are just starting out and you're not making a lot of money, having to make payments on tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debts can be absolutely crippling. This is why I said that college education in America is a giant money-making scam. Young people are seduced by the idea of college being a five-year party that will provide an automatic ticket into the middle class. But the reality is that the only guarantee is that it will, it's a ticket to serfdom, unless you have wealthy parents that are willing to foot the bill for you. Actually, if you want a good job, you just got wealthy parents that have all the right connections. I mean, that's how it works. It says, and bankruptcy laws have been changed to make it incredibly difficult to get rid of student loan debt. So once you've signed up for student loan debt slavery, you're basically faced with two choices. Either you're going to pay it or you're going to die with it. And that's true. I mean, it's it's multi-thousands of dollars. So, So, I mean... That's the way it's set up. Mind you, it's really there for indoctrination and to PC, the latest political correct views and so on. Social engineering is really what it's for. So you, you pay you pay to get brainwashed. Also, too, it says um, blood donation ban lifted for some men who have sex with men. That's how you politically correctly address this in Canada. Uh, so it's from the CBC and uh, it uh, says Health Canada will allow men to donate blood if they haven't had sex with a man in the last five years, a change in policy that will go into effect in the coming weeks. I think Australia also did it, did it too, and so on, to make everything fair. And in London too, they're going to expect more and more riots as the economy goes down the tubes and the EU Parliament keeps demanding more and more money uh, from Britain to plug the holes in Greece and Italy and other countries, and that's this endless as a black hole, as I've said many times. And um, there's going to be riots as everything goes down the tubes. So the mayor has come out, Boris, and says, I'll decide when police can use the water cannons on protesters. They know it's coming. It's going to be a lot worse than just water cannons. Back with more after this. Hi, folks, we're cutting through the matrix. And also this article, too, is, is, hasn't been in the mainstream in the West at all, but so this big protest took place in the U.S. on May the 21st. It says, it says here, hundreds of demonstrators marched outside the U.S. Justice Department, Washington, to protest against the judiciary's failure to prosecute major American financial institutions that have contributed to the nation's growing housing crisis. Press TV reports, it says. Since back in 2012, nearly 800,000 Americans were forced out of their homes through foreclosures. It's a bank foreclosing on their mortgages, a procedure in which financial institutions evict homeowners from their home due to their inability to meet increasing finance rates and their monthly mortgage payments. And it says, um, so they marched through on Monday, urging the nation's authorities to hold that the bankers accountable for sweeping foreclosure practices that have forced many homeowners to lose their homes to banks that have financed them. They're still doing it, by the way. It's still ongoing, this foreclosure stuff. The protesters further called the U.S. Justice Department to put an end to persisting mass foreclosures. And it says, meanwhile, more than a dozen marchers were detained outside the Department of Justice by D.C. police on charges of civil disobedience. However, some victims of bank foreclosures who participated in the protest rally said that the arrests were a small uh, price to pay for speaking out against American corporate banks, which make major profits through their predatory lending and foreclosure practices. This is in 2012, uh, and as I say, the 800,000 were forced out of homes and so on. 
And it says, um, bank foreclosures across the U.S. are continuing at a rate of over 40,000 per month as the percentage of loans and foreclosures remains eight times higher than in 2005. This is while a large number of homeowners that have lost their homes through foreclosures are African Americans who have disproportionately been targeted with discriminatory lending practiced by U.S. banks. So it goes on and on, and and it's true enough. I mean, these banks knew what they were doing as they they were selling off to other banks and and putting up the price up and so on, uh, mortgages that were vastly overpriced and, and kept going up and up and up until there were massive bubbles and that's what brought the whole thing down. They knew what they were doing. And the big top banks in, in the U.S. had meetings about it, the top members, saying that the government will have to bail us out if we were getting in trouble. So they just pushed it to the limit until it happened and then sure enough they got bailed out. I mean, and no one's in the slammer for it. No one's in the slammer for this. And, and even in their own court system, which the bankers often run too, but believe it or not, they, they really do have a lot to do with it. Um, they will say it's a victimless crime, meaning that people weren't physically, well, like the one in England, they're getting slashed to death with machetes, you know, and cleavers. They call it victimless crimes. But whenever the white-collar criminals do this sort of thing and plunder the country of billions of dollars. Incredible, isn't it? And it's never changed. The system's always kept the same way so they can do it again. Because I say they do this at least twice a century. That's that's their history. At least twice a century on a big scale and many little ones in between. It's, it's criminality, folks, and it's legalized. Now they're ready to steal your bank accounts. And that's been legalized too. I wonder if they'll rename it. Acquiring your bank account? How will he reword it to make it sound better now that it's legal to plunder your bank accounts? Well, from Hamish Mustard, Ontario, Canada, it's good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.